0: Hello and welcome to episode two of Command Space, uh, a show where we discuss things with famous guests. Uh, Today is August 8th. Uh, I'm Stephen Hackett, uh, filling in for Mike Hurley, who is uh, currently rock climbing uh, in the Appalachian Mountains. That's not true at all. With me, uh, (laughs) as always, is uh, Terry Lucy. Terry, how are you? I'm very good, sir. I'm very good. You're doing well. I'm very good. Good. Thanks for filling in. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Uh, I, was, I was here last week, too, because you, you weren't here, so it's been, it's been fun. And sitting uh, on the other side of his microphone, uh, hailing from beautiful, sunny California, Mr. Jason Snell. Hello. How are you?
1: I'm doing great, uh, and it is sunny today, which is nice. Yeah. In San Francisco, it's not always sunny in the summertime, but it is today.
0: Yeah, it's been um, it's been I don't know about for you guys, but it's been really hot here this summer, like kind of dangerously hot. So today it's like only in the 90s, and people are wearing jackets and scarves and bundling up their children.
1: It was 80 yeah. degrees at home yesterday, and that was fantastic because it's been very cold actually here this summer. Yeah. Believe Same it or not, here. we haven't had a summer yet.
0: Yeah, well, it's been uh, it's just been rainy and uh, and the Olympics too. I guess kind of make it feel <laughs> weird. Yeah, I don't I don't envy having that. that. Whatever weather you see on your delayed highlights that you guys are getting over there, that's what. Uh, <laughs> that's my problem. Well, uh, Jason, thank you, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I thought I thought we would start um, uh, by visiting what is now honestly my homepage in Safari. <laughs> uh, your Wikipedia Wikipedia entry.
1: Yes, I have one. How does that feel? You know, boy that so like I don't know, ten years ago, less, eight years ago there was a uh, uh I, I was on Wikipedia and somebody created a Wikipedia page and then for me and then I updated it with some some correct facts, which of course is a no-no for Wikipedia. You have to have your friends update your page for you. Um so it's a little weird. They, somebody voted uh, – they did a vote for deletion saying that I wasn't relevant and uh, it it lost, which surprised me. I figured they'd delete it. I'm not sure whether I like that I have it or not. I guess I like it, especially since there's this famous Jason Snell who's an Australian, Australian rules football player mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, who seems to be mostly famous for being horribly injured to end his career. Um, and now he's a businessman in Australia and uh, I, I feel sort of good that I got the – definitive Jason Snell on Wikipedia. So in on some ways I'm I'm happy about it, but it is a little weird and you know, there aren't lots of articles about me and that's what Wikipedia likes to likes to see. So, I don't know. I keep waiting for it, for it to be deleted eventually, but it's still there after all these years. So maybe it's it's
0: stuck. Well, uh, for 20 bucks, I'll go in and uh, change whatever you want me to.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the way it works, you got to write uh, you know, we need to get somebody to write an article about me and then you can use that as your source in a footnote and then which, it's funny, I, that actually happened to me. Um, Michael Gartenberg, the analyst, um, was writing about how his Wikipedia page was really wrong. Um, but he's not, again, you're not allowed to edit your own Wikipedia page. Um, and so I, I did it, because I know him, and I, I have facts about him, and um, I was able to update some of his information. And that, that's, it, It's nice. Wikipedia brings friends together. Friends edit one another's pages. <laughs>
0: Would it, I would guess a podcast would count as a good source, wouldn't it?
1: That's a, that would be a good question. Is if I imagine you could link to a podcast and and so say this give is us a, a
0: couple of um, quick fire facts about you then because can you confirm you're red green colorblind
1: I can in fact when I was in first grade uh, they held up the picture that said there's you know tell me what number is on this and I said there's no number on this and they said hmm interesting and uh and so yeah I I can see um uh, I can see the difference between red and green but uh within when I was in college I took a test that had 10 different little circles with shades of green and they asked me to put them in order um uh, and I could do the first three and the last two or three, and the ones in the middle I just handed back and I said, "These are all the same, sorry." <laughs> and so it's true, it's true. My differentiation of reds and especially greens is bad, and light pink looks like gray to me. Hmm. So, so confirmed,
0: go. confirmed. I confirm Wikipedia. Hopefully, one of our listeners can uh, has got an account and sort <laughs> it out for us. Yeah. So uh, somebody, somebody out there, please take care of that for Jason. <laughs> I can't do it myself. You were named the sixth most powerful person <laughs> in the world of Macintosh computing.
1: By, uh, by MDJ back in the day, by Mac Journals, Matt, Matt Dethridge, And uh, they did a survey, which they don't do anymore. So I get to – uh, which is great because I was like number six or whatever. So uh, they haven't done it since. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm still at least number six, <laughs> if not higher frankly uh so that was cool that was also weird where people that that was like their power survey of like who was the most powerful um you know who the most powerful people in the apple world which i always thought was really strange because the answer was always you know one steve jobs two steve jobs three steve jobs four (laughs) phil schiller five steve jobs again um, but it was mostly about like the like developer and and media communities. Yeah. So it was people like Adam Angst and David Pogue. And, so,
0: so basically, what you just said is you are the most powerful person in the world of Macintosh computing outside of Apple Inc. Is what you just said. <laughs> well, not, well not Walt Mossberg, who was fifth.
1: No, that was my. Those were my. Those were my votes. <laughs> those are your but, votes. Okay. But but in in reality, it was like David Pogue and Walt Mossberg and yeah. and Adam Angst and it was people like that. So gotcha. and then I was on there. Well, so, it was great. Important
0: you are more important than scott forstall though who was only 18th that year
1: yeah well i mean again yeah it's it's that was a nice really nice survey um (laughs) I, i i always argued with matt that they should uh that he should just uh take take apple people and have a separate list because you know there's people that people like to pay attention to in the media and then there's the people who actually make the decisions about the products and those are completely different um but uh but, yeah, that was – what I what I found after doing this for um, – now it's been about 18 years. or um, right? If you count me being an intern at Mac User Magazine, it's been 19 years that I've been doing this, is this, that nobody knew my name until uh, my picture started appearing in Macworld Magazine. And that that made the difference. Then, when once there's a picture, people are like, oh, you're the guy – I had written like cover story after cover story and – <laughs> Some people on the internet knew me, but it's amazing the power of that that uh, photo in a on piece on a piece of paper in a magazine. Yeah. Uh, that then suddenly people knew who I was, even though I'd been doing it for like you know more than a decade at that point.
0: You know that's kind of funny. I I was not going to talk talk about it, but I was uh, really. You're not wanted... going to
1: talk about my picture? Let's talk about yeah, my picture. It's my wallpaper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right, uh, and with your, my Wikipedia page right in front is, of is me. your own page. It's really and yeah. it's tiled. It's really a strange thing. Quite right too. But I was really, actually, really psyched. Uh, I did the, um, uh, is it the the back page column this month in Mountain. Oh World, right, and uh, which was really cool. Um, and yeah, I, I, had, saw that. I had I had the photo in there, and like my wife went to the bookstore around the corner from our house and bought like six copies. <laughs> she was like, "Your picture's in the magazine." So.
1: There is something about 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 the paper that uh, really resonates with a lot of people. That it's like this is real in a way yeah. that maybe our all our little stuff on the internet isn't so real, and that'll that'll fade with time. But uh, you know, I, I think from people even like you know 25, 30 years and up, especially it's and certainly for everybody's moms, it's a big deal to see it. Oh, you know this. It, it, maybe you are successful because yeah. your picture is on a piece of paper yeah. in a magazine. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And that, that actually segues pretty nicely. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about intertext, which, um, uh, ironically, also a PDF, so. yeah, which ironically wasn't a paper thing.
1: Right. Right. So yeah, I, I, I was saying this on the internet the other day cause somebody was talking about every now and then I, I, somebody says, well, you know, magazine people like Jason Snell at Macworld, you know, old and usually sometimes it's Century, but mostly it's like you know old media people and that always made me laugh because you know i read i ran a, a bulletin board a bbs when i was in high school and when i was in college uh the one of the first things i did was uh use the internet to start a magazine and but it was a magazine on the internet and there was no at that point that was at least widely known in like 1990 and 1991 and so i you know that that was so long ago that you the concept of this thing doesn't exist on the internet was a thing where now you know everything's on the internet at least 20 times but back then um there was a guy who did this short story like fiction short story magazine and he stopped And I realized that nobody was doing one. And so I didn't want there to not be one on the Internet. And so I started up Intertext with a a friend of mine, uh, Jeff Duncan, who um, worked on Tidbits, actually, for quite a while um, up in Seattle. And um, we did this magazine. So it was available in an ASCII format, plain text. And then I laid out the issues in PageMaker myself to begin with and InDesign later. Uh, And this was actually before pdf as well so it was a postscript file so you could dump the postscript file to a laser printer um and then uh, a magazine would come out and it was all distributed by uh, ftp or on usenet newsgroups so you know we were uh, it was a, an attempt to do electronic publishing when there were essentially no tools to let you do it and over the years that evolved and uh, you know i created a website in the fall of 9 19- three, I want to say, and, and, uh, converted every, all the postscript files into PDFs eventually and did, uh, ebook versions for the Palm pilot, which I, one of these days I need to convert all of the intertext stuff into EPUB, uh, too. But, um, you know, I did it for, I did it for 10 years. Um, when my wife and I had our first child, uh, it, it started to really slow down and as I was becoming sort of like more, doing more and more uh, stuff at work and being more responsible at work and then uh, we, my wife uh, and I discovered that we were having a second child and I said, you know what? I, I... <laughs> Now it would be a good time to stop and so I did a final a final issue. But in the end, you know, I, I think we did like 60 issues and there are like 300 short stories or something that we published and, uh, you know, but th- that was, so the, you know, long story here is that Although I ended up working for a print magazine for my career, you know, I, I've always been really focused on electronic distribution of, of media. And so, you know, you can trace that all the way back to Intertext, which started about, I think, like a year or six months after Adam, Engst and, Adam and Tanya Engst started doing tidbits. And, you know, we were there in the early days saying there's got to be something to this Internet thing.
0: Just, and the great news is bad. that there,
1: there is. There is. <laughs> it turns out. Because, well, it was, it was not a foregone conclusion at the time, but it turns out that, yeah, there really was actually – we were right. There was something to that internet thing and now um – You know the irony of this is, though, when I went to journalism school and when I was an intern at a at a daily newspaper, I decided that I really preferred the pace of of working at a monthly magazine to working at a daily newspaper, which I laugh at now, since of course on the web, you know, daily isn't even a thing. It's really like if something happens, you have to cover it immediately. Um, So you know, the world has has not allowed me to take that leisurely approach. (laughs) Instead. I'm doing more than daily, and that's fine. I actually love it, but um, it's funny how, how things change in the course of 15 years. You know?
0: Yeah, it's, it, it seems it, – it's kind of funny you know, uh, with, with, with TechHive now. Uh, you're kind of back uh, into doing something that, that just exists online. There's not a, a right. version of TechHive.
1: Right, right, yeah. So, TechHive.com, uh, which is a new site that we're there's a beta blog now, and we're launching that in September. Uh, there's no print magazine. You know, PCWorld.com and MacWorld.com have have their print equivalent, uh, but you know, you wouldn't launch a print magazine in the U.S. especially today. It's just not economically feasible. All the growth is in uh, is on the web. Um, although that said, you know, I, I I'm holding out. M- the hope that maybe down the road we'll do a Tech Hive thing as a as a digital magazine, like um, you know, like actually Engadget does with Distro, which is a weekly summary of it's sort of like the best of Engadget for people who don't want to drink from the fire hose. They they do a magazine at the end of the week that you can read on your iPad, and I think that's cool, and I I, I love. Uh, that to be a possibility for, for TechHive at some point, but we got to get the website right first. And so that's our, that's our primary concern. But I'd love to end up with a, with a weekly or twice or every two weeks or monthly or whatever the frequency uh, iPad edition of TechHive uh, at some point down the road. I'm not sure whether that'll work economically or not, but um, that's a possibility, which is cool because launching a new magazine is sort of like just something that stopped a few years ago. It just doesn't make any financial sense. And with the success of the iPad, I think maybe there is a window there, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, I was talking to um, a friend of the network, uh, Sean Blanc, uh, not not too long ago about this sort of very thing, how as as things like the iPad have become more popular um, and and formats like like podcasting have become more popular, there's so many different ways to get your content out there and to connect to people who, who like receiving that content in different ways, and, and I think in a lot of ways your career really has kind of uh, been set up like the timing was just perfect where you, you you've been through all those major phases. You know, podcasting wasn't a thing when you started. You know, um, digital magazines. You know, have, have, having a PostScript file and having an iBooks file are two very different <laughs> different outcomes. They're a little bit different. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think.
1: I mean, it's funny. Um, I've always been interested in technology and I've always been interested in media. I mean, I was a, in, in school. Everybody would tell you that, you know, I don't think anybody I went to school with would be surprised if if you said, well, what Jason ended up doing was something involving computers. Yeah, okay, check, right. And involving uh, publishing and media. And they're like, yep, yep, that makes sense too. So it, it, what's been cool, and I think a lot of people who are in the tech media are like this, is we we are we are interested in both. We're not – Back when I started in magazines, there were a lot of people who were like um, working in technology magazines who wanted to be in the magazine business. And they couldn't get a job at Vanity Fair or or, or Esquire or Newsweek or Time. And so they were working at Macworld or PC World or or MacWeek or MacUser or whatever. And uh, those people didn't love technology. They might uh, have understood it, but they didn't really love it. They loved, uh, loved media. And one of the nice things about the tech media today, especially I, I would say one of the people I know in the Apple focused media, is these people largely love tech. They 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 legitimately love technology. That's why they're doing it. They're not doing it because they want to become a media professional and that could lead anywhere. They're doing it because they love technology and are genuinely enthusiastic about it. And I think that Um, you know, that, that's something that I've always had and that's why I tried to make a digital magazine in college and to do a podcast before there were a lot of podcasts and, and why I, you know, tinker around with other stuff too is just because I'm excited about the new technology. And then as a media person, I think this new technology could be a great outlet for me to express myself in some other way. So let's experiment with it, which I think is great. I, um, I when I was a Mac user, there was a guy who was in charge of all of our online efforts and he was in a different office and I, I remember um sending him a, a memo at some point that was a proposal that basically said, I think we should do a web page. There's this thing called the web <laughs> on this thing called the internet, and we should do one, and all it should say is like, you know, how to reach us and how to subscribe and whatever, but we should be there. And his response is classic and I will remember it for the rest of my life. Uh he said, Our future is on CompuServe. And I just remember thinking, and to this day, I think you know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be that guy who just poo-poos the new because there's some existing thing that's throwing off, off enough money that you just want to milk that until the end because it will end. And I've never been interested in kind of writing something down to the end. I want I want to try the new stuff. So you know, writing about tech is great because the audiences uh, want that too. And and so if I was writing about some topic that was less cutting. It would be a lot harder to push uh, with new technology and new media because that audience wouldn't be there for another, like, five years. And tech media, that audience is coming along with you, and they want to try iPad magazines and reading things in RSS and Flipboard and iBooks and all that, all that stuff. And so it's a great, you know, great audience to talk to, and it's a great way for me to do the two things that I've always loved, which is media and, uh, and computer stuff.
0: I yeah, I think the the combination is unique, you know. I was as you were talking I was, I was thinking about my my time in journalism school and I went to a small journalism school, you know, at at a bigger university and uh it was very much focused on on print and, and there wasn't a lot of this, you know, sort of new technology infusing the curriculum. And for better or for worse, you know, I think a lot of journalism schools are kind of on that this weird place right now of Hey, we know we should be teaching our students, you know, these skills to to write for all these different type of, of platforms. But at the same time, I think so much of the of the media is so uh, hesitant to move on to the new. Um, and, and so I think the you know the tech journalism and tech you know nerds who read tech journalism are definitely a unique set of people.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean that that's the. Uh, whenever I go to a general like magazine conference or something like that, I say my readers are where your readers are going to be in five years. So mm-hmm. um, and, and and so we we get to be together the tech readers and the tech writers and media get to kind of be the canary in the coal mine. So like when I tell people, I look at our like we were there we did eBooks for Macworld we did these super guides and we started out as like doing PDFs and we did okay with it the idea of like collecting material into a book as a pdf and then selling it on on the internet Uh, it did okay but uh we started doing those on the ibook store and on the kindle store and in the last couple of years we've seen that those sales the pdf is kind of dropping off because that that was a, a kind of a hack of taking paper and putting a paper image of paper on a on a digital device but epub based stuff ibooks and kindle um is growing exponentially and so I, I talk to people in, in, in publishing and I say, look, may, may or may not be convinced that ebooks are a real thing, but let me tell you they're a real thing because our audience has completely embraced them. And our audience is where everybody else will be in five years, at least, if not sooner. Um, and, you know, I love, that's why I love, you know, when we got on Twitter, we all got on Twitter before everybody else too, and now all the famous people are on Twitter too. But back in the day, it was just the tech nerds, and I was looking at Twitter and thinking this is going to be huge because this is, you know, this is great, and we're all using it. And we were just ahead by a few years, so um, it, it's a great audience to talk to because they, you know, they want the new thing too. Which, if I was covering, even if I was covering like sports, it wouldn't be the same because most sports fans are not. There are tech nerds who are sports fans, but not the reverse isn't true. So
0: yeah. Yeah, you know it's um, it's funny. I, the the super guides actually came to mind uh, as you were talking about you know moving moving different platforms. And um, I, I recently you know tried a little experiment with with iBooks and, and ran up against the uh, the kind of infamous uh, iBooks end user license agreement. Right, that yeah. basically says if you make money in any way, it has to go to the store. Yeah, If you use an iBooks author, yeah, yeah. Um, and. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, what what your take is on that. Like, do you think that um, that Apple is is looking to leverage iBooks, um, you know, in, in a way that it can be uh, that that next platform, that that next evolutionary step? Or I mean, the, the way I look at it is the iBooks author end user license agreement cuts little guys like me kind of out of the picture for now, um, and it's sort of this weird oh. kind of in between thing. Have you had any experience with that?
1: Well, I mean, the thing is that you can create books for iBooks. I mean, it's a standard EPUB. the The, the iBooks author stuff comes in when you want to use the special right books author uh, enhanced format, which only works on the iPad, right? I mean, you couldn't you couldn't actually take that to the Kindle Fire, right? Google Books, if you wanted to, at least yet. I mean, there probably if that license wasn't there, somebody would write a converter. But um, I think that I think that's Apple saying. Um, it doesn't want to be the lowest common denominator. Hmm. So, wants to, it wants to say, we'll play all the same ebooks back that Kindle will and that Google will and, you know, all that is good. We got that. And then we've got this super awesome special thing that only wor- works on the iPad to get, to, so that people are motivated to create. If you're going to create a special super awesome book, you'll create it for the iPad and then it'll only be on the iPad. Um, it also is, I, I'm actually, I've got a te- uh, BB edit document open right now. Who knows? I'm so busy these days. I'm not sure when I'm going to write it. So I'm going to I'm going to give you my premise here. So please don't write this article until uh, <laughs> I do. Uh, Apple's skill as a software company is like its secret weapon, I think. And uh, the example I want to give is um, is about iBooks Author, right? I mean, iBooks Author isn't great, but it, it's really like Pages kind of hacked to be an EPUB, Pages or Keynote, or yeah. a little bit, right, to be a, a, an ebook maker. Uh, you know, Kindle Fire has this KF8 uh, format that um, Amazon built that's a super whizzy enhanced format. Um, the difference is that Amazon doesn't know how to build software. It knows how to build back-end software. And it's learning how to build tablet software. But it doesn't have – it doesn't write applications. And there's no – you know, if if Amazon had come out with a Kindle Fire and come out with something like iBooks Author that's like the super wizzy, easy-to-use – um, make enhanced books app. I think that it would have, uh, you know, had a chance to make that case, but they they seem to be incapable of that. And Google the same way. Google can't make desktop software to save its life either. And so, you know, this is one of those weird areas where Apple has a huge advantage, which is that they can not only have these successful, devices, but they can have a piece of software that they just make essentially, you know, and give away. And it increases the value of their hardware because they say, look, who else is going to give you this super awesome, uh, you know, uh, app to build the super awesome books? And uh, there's no other answer. I mean maybe Adobe in a couple of years will have a solution that will let you do that uh, across all the different devices and you'll have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for the – <laughs> gives it away. So, you know, I, I, that's, that's my feeling about the iBooks author thing is that, is that it's not – you know, it, it's different – uh, because it's a—it's like a, an enhanced version of the book. And you are limited to the iBookstore with it, but really you're limited to the iPad with that thing now anyway. Right. It would be nice if there was some, you know, eh, really if you want to be across all the devices at this point, you got to do a simplified version. And I kind of feel like that's the right thing for a lot of people to do is you do a you do a super snazzy iBooks version that's a little bit more expensive and then you use a simplified version that's everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's like a Blu-ray and a DVD almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah, almost, or or the special edition, like the box set edition, and then the regular edition.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's kind of the conclusion I came to. You know, it's like, well, I can do a PDF and, and hit everybody, no matter what their device is, and and save this fancy stuff, you know, for for another another level. We've well, um, we done
1: iBooks author for one of our books, and it was a it was kind of an experiment, and it was a book about iOS stuff because we knew that that would be an audience that would almost certainly have an iPad. Mm-hmm. But, rest of the stuff we're doing is in epub because we want it to be in the kindle store i have a kindle i mean i i don't buy ibooks i buy kindle books so you know even as somebody who's got all apple devices well plus a kindle um i i I buy that those because then i can read those on my kindle and on my iphone and on my ipad so we want to be on the kindle store as well as the ibook store
0: yeah yeah i mean i'm definitely the same way Uh, the kindles i mean especially for long form reading I just can't bring myself to do that on the iPad, you know. Whether it's because notification center is going off, or you know, the backlit screen makes my eyes bleed, or you know, whatever it is, the Kindle definitely still has a has a special place in my heart.
1: Yeah, for plain text, I I think it can't be beat. I mean, it can be beat on every other scale, but plain text, especially in bright light, um, I would much rather read a book that's just words on a page on my e-ink
0: Kindle than on any other device. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's take a let's take a quick break and uh talk about Squarespace for a second. Uh Squarespace uh, is here uh with with version 6. A brand new platform and it's not like uh it's not like version 5 was was bad. Version 5 was was awesome. And uh with version 6 they've they've made it they've made it even better. Uh Squarespace, you know, they're famous for for great-looking templates, for great uptime, for great bandwidth if if uh, Macworld, or or Daring Fireball, or Terry Lucy, link to you. Your site's not going to go down. Um, you're going to stay up because they've got the resources behind it. You don't have to go in and worry about your cache or worry about, uh, you know, uh, having some images on S3 and, and making sure everything stays up. Squarespace just uh, they just take care of it for you. Um, they've got. Uh, with, with version 6, beautiful new templates that are, that are fully responsive. You know, more and more of us do more and more of our browsing from our iPads and iPhones and with Squarespace 6. You don't have to worry about what that experience is going to be like for your readers. It uh, really looks great. Um, and uh, we have a, uh, a special offer for you guys. You know, as you know, Squarespace has two plans. The standard plan is $10 a month with $20 a month being the unlimited plan. Uh, if you sign up for an annual plan, you get 20% off that. And if you sign up for two years, you get 25% off. Um, and at checkout, if you guys use the coupon code 70decibels8, you get an additional 10% off during checkout, no matter what you sign up for. Uh, so check them out, squarespace.com forward slash 70decibels. Thanks uh, very much to Squarespace for sponsoring uh, the network and uh, Command Space. Awesome. Yeah. So you guys, uh, you guys still here? Everybody still good? Oh, yeah. Good. I don't know if you were, uh, Jason, was sending emails to people to get his Wikipedia changed before uh, show notes go up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so-
1: counting, I am counting on the great command space listening audience to, uh, to, to correctly, factually update my Wikipedia page.
0: <laughs> Please don't deface it. That would make me sad. Yeah, that, that would be unfortunate. Um, now, Jason, you've been doing this, uh, you've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not, I I won't, you know, Terry's like 13. It's, it's kind of a shame how young (laughs) Terry is, but, uh, you know, I I think as someone who is, who is newer in this, um, you know, I I know I for one look up to, to Macworld and what you guys are doing. Um, and you've been like, like we've talked about this whole time, you've seen this, this industry both in terms of Apple and in terms of the media coverage, you know, continue to change and continue to evolve. And it seems like now more than ever it's really like the the barrier of entry to to reporting or or to at least writing is is lower than it's ever been. You can just sign up with Squarespace, sign up with Tumblr, uh, or just have a Twitter account. You know, the guys who just report on Twitter um, and start writing. And that that I think is is a lot different uh, than it was maybe back in nineteen ninety one, you know, where you had to you had to join a magazine. Or you had to know how to make your own PostScript files and submit, <laughs> submit them via FTP. Um, so, w- what do you think about that that barrier of entry? Do you think that's a a, a good thing that, that anybody can sit down and start writing, or do you think that, or do you miss the days where there was kind of a, <laughs> a hurdle to to jump into days space? of the gatekeeper? Yeah. Well,
1: you know, I, I don't I don't miss the days of the gatekeeper in the sense that I, I I do feel strongly that good stuff is gonna is gonna win out, and that if you've got a a point of view and uh, something to say, and an authentic voice that people will respond, and that you you know, it should be, uh, you know, it'll be noticed, and you'll be successful, and that's how it should be. And you know, it's different, but it's maybe not as different as it as it it was. I, I think there are more opportunities for people to get noticed than maybe there were. 15, 20 years ago, but you know, how did somebody become a writer? I don't even know for, for a, a magazine back in the day. They probably, uh, since maybe they sent, um, an email or they posted in a forum or something and it was maybe a little more talent scout, like than it has to be now. It's easier for us to find great writers on the internet because, uh, we can see them instead of having to just hope that they randomly turn up. So I think that's great. I also think that if, you know, it, it can be overstated this ability to, Post something. I mean, you can create a blog or a Tumblr account or whatever, and start posting things. And if what you've got is bad, you know, it, it's not going to matter. You you'll you'll have a thing, but it won't be very good, and and people won't come and won't read it. And it, it, in the end, it won't be that much different. In fact, in some ways, it's more brutal because you actually did it in public and you tried instead of just saying boy i wish i had a chance and you know i guess you know maybe you find out that it, that people aren't responsive and you move on to something else but um you know i do think that's still true that that uh the good stuff is going to is going to win out and the nice thing about having this low barrier is that uh somebody who's got good stuff but just whatever reason doesn't isn't in the right place doesn't know the right people didn't make the right connections that person can still get out there that said somebody has to you know somebody has to notice that you wrote something so Having getting noticed and getting a connection still has to happen, but um, it's easier and your chances are greater. I always used to say when people emailed me saying, "How do I get started?" I I used to just say, um, "You know, call call up uh, Adam (laughs) Engst and and you know Tidbits lets people write for Tidbits for free. And if you write good stuff for Tidbits, you're going to be seen by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people." And th- there's some truth to that still that if you if you appear somewhere that's got an audience and they know who you are, uh, they like what you do, then you've got a better chance to kind of parlay that into into something else but uh so yeah you know it's it's funny it's not on one level it's different, and on another level it isn't functionally different it's just that sort of the percentages have changed and, in a good way that it's easier to get your stuff out there. you still have to meet somebody or know somebody or get noticed but that's probably easier than it used to be and more democratic is better i mean i was never i'm thrilled that we have a back page on macworld that is taken up by all sorts of people who've never appeared in its pages before including you and 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 that that used to not be the case right where would we even find those people and it would be drawn from a very small pool of people and it's so great that there are so many people out there that like um you know we've had Fraser, Fraser Spears on the back page a couple of times writing about education stuff and that's entirely because he started blogging about I mean we knew him as a developer but he started blogging about the his experiences with iPads at his school in Scotland and that that was fantastic and we you know and as a result he's been in the magazine a couple of times too so i love that that somebody who you might have you know them or somebody you know knows them, you know, John Gruber links to them or, or Tidbits links to them or, you know, or any of these or Sean Blanc links to them. Then, then um, suddenly uh, they're you know, you, you read them and then there's that judgment point, right? Either John Gruber judged them or we judged them and said this, Oh wow, this person's really cool. We, you should uh, read them. And uh, in the end, right? And in the end, that's always been the case that you can either do a good job with it or you can't. And if, if you can, then you should be successful. It's just easier now a little bit, but not a lot, just a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a there's a downside of that too, right? That um, you know, because especially if you're writing on the internet, um, your your history follows you, right? Like you have your external oh, yeah. links on your Wikipedia page, and you kind of have to, you know, unless you just bomb something into oblivion, it the things that you do at the beginning are always kind of with you. You know, and and I have found myself, you know, someone who to something I wrote four years ago and it's kind of like cringeworthy almost like, oh, I can't believe I thought that or I can't believe that was so poorly written or, or whatever it is. You know, I, it's kind of like your your past is always with you on the Internet to a degree. Yeah, well, that's and that's going to be true of everybody from now
1: on. Right. I mean, I've got. I've got some stuff that that I wrote back when that that it probably isn't accessible on the internet yet although even then I feel like at some point somebody's going to get the bright idea of scanning in all the pages of my my college newspaper and OCRing it and all of a sudden all the terrible things I wrote in college will be on the internet but for, you know now that it's tr- totally true all that stuff is out there forever and I mean that's true of everybody's lives on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else that that stuff is kind of there forever, um, you know. But that that's true. But uh, I don't know. I find that people are fairly forgiving. I think that, and their memories are not necessarily that long. I mean, I, I, I there are a few people that I've had bad interactions with, on the internet where I felt like you know, wow, this guy's kind of a jerk. Um, and a few years later, they pop up again, and I think I have vaguely negative feelings about this name. Why is that? And I can't even—I have to search my my Google, you know, my my Gmail account <laughs> to and figure out why I don't like this person. Um, and even then, if they what they're doing is good, you just—I I think most people just kind of let it go and say, "Oh, this, you know, oh yeah, this person is 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 good." Uh, at the same time, if you build up a name, you know, y- you do have a reputation that goes with you, and if you. And you risk it if you do things that are bad, and the internet is not particularly forgiving of that. So, you know, it's funny. It's it's like all the rules are still there that were there 20 years ago. It's just that they're applied differently. And, you know, the like I said, the, the weights and the percentages are a little bit different. But, you know, in the end... Um, you know, reputation's still a thing, and having a bad one can hurt you, and having a good one can help you. But you d- you also don't want to blow it. Uh, it's it's just different. Like the math is different, but the underlying principles are the same.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, I think it's really interesting. You know, um, you look at uh, you know guys who have been doing this um, you know a long time, especially online. Like you think, like I think of of guys like John Gruber who were in this kind of one man band website long before many of us were, and um and you can you can it's fun because you can see how his writing evolves and see like he used to <laughs> refer to the site in third person and at some point he stopped that so you can go back and find when that transition was and and what's neat about it is somebody who um who is newer to this and who wants to do this full-time is you can learn from all that stuff right because it's it's much more transparent than it was in the past you can almost watch somebody as they evolve
1: yeah yeah it's it's true. Um And they learn, and those people learn lessons. And then, I mean, if you look now, I'm sure you can find, and you've probably seen several of them. There are several sites out there that are doing what John Gruber figured out how to do over the course of several years, Um, and you know they've taken his endpoint and said that's going to be my starting point. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I'm if their if their content is good, and that's always the challenge because you know John. John's very talented and, uh, and kind of one of a kind, and his voice is very specific. But um, he also did figure out this format, and so you see sites where there's a person or two, and they've got links and occasional longer pieces and uh, a, a little ad on the side and an RSS sponsor. And there are a lot of those out there now, and some of them will succeed and some of them won't. And you know, Grouper sort of set people down that path, and it's just up to everybody else to to take the next step and not just say, I'm going to just duplicate what Gruber is, but say, use that as a starting point and, and figure that out.
0: No, absolutely. You know, and I've, you know, I've got to say, I mean, my site is very much like that. And, um, I know I try, uh, hard to, to balance, you know, it, something as simple as the link list versus the longer articles. And, and to make sure that it's sort of easy to fall back on the link list as, as, uh, as a, I don't want to say a crutch but as a sort of the default I guess because in some ways it's it's easier than sitting down and and, and thinking through and, and writing through a, a longer piece and um, I, I guess that that's very different uh, in a lot of ways um, to something like a like a printed magazine right like you can't, you can't really do a linked list in a magazine very in a very it would be very strange
1: right I and I love I love linked lists i I, I think you know, I, But it's just the format is interesting that, that John sort of ended up with this interesting combination. I mean I remember when Daring Fireball was really just pieces and then the link list was separate and I think it wasn't even there and then it was separate and then it was rolled in. And now it's the bulk of what he does is sort of links with a paragraph with occasional longer pieces and um, that's really interesting. But I don't think John could have gotten where he – if all he did was was link blogging i think that his pieces established him and uh and now he doesn't have to do so many of them but you know but it, it's fine i i i i think people are are duplicating that format because it works it's just interesting that he kind of had to figure it out himself and now everybody's like all right that i like that let's do that and it'll be interesting to see how that evolves what's the what's the next thing and you know is there is there some way to take that and and make uh make more out of it i, I actually my favorite example of this is um Jim Dalrymple, who, when he left Macworld, he started The Loop and he started it as essentially a remaking of Mac Central, which is the site that Macworld bought that Jim worked for for many, many years. And he went back and said, I'm going to do essentially Mac Central again. And at the time, I was like, really? You know, it's like, you know, Jim is a really talented guy. And I was kind of a little disappointed that what he wanted to do was go back and, and remake, you know, Mac Central circa 2000. And that was his first crack at it. And uh, his second crack at it was to rethink what the loop was going to be, and turn it into something that was more like daring fireball. And that has worked great for him. And I actually think has allowed him to stretch, uh, not just in the format, but in terms of the voice, really stretch himself and 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 do some fantastic stuff and come out of the shell. And that's a that's a I think understated uh, strength of uh, of Gruber is that uh, Gruber sends the message that it's actually okay to be yourself. And in fact, you really ought to embrace it and talk in the first person and have opinions and be unvarnished because that, you know, that people like to see real people on the internet. And Jim has always been a character, uh, but people didn't know it for many years and now they know it, which is good because it's an asset of his. So, you know, he does a podcast and he does a, he does a site that's got his voice on it and it's much better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I, I Writers that I end up sticking with, sites that end up sticking around on Google Reader are definitely the ones you know, that have a unique voice. Because when someone's got that, you, you feel – whether you have it or not, you know, guys like us, I mean, we're, we're spoiled because we get to know all these people you know, on a personal level. But even if you don't, I think when someone writes with a unique voice, you, you perceive that connection with them, right? And I think that's a very valuable thing.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That's what makes people want to stick around. Is that you feel like you know you know them in a way, even if you have never met them, you you know them, you know their voice, and that's what attracts you.
0: Right. Now, absolutely. Um, before we cut you loose, uh, I, I did have uh, just just one news topic, and it's been it's been all over the place, and don't want. Uh, I don't think it needs to be a big long thing, <laughs> but but as someone who has, I mean, you've you've followed Apple now for. For a long, long time. And, and it seems I was a Mac that user. Was, that was a lot of longs, I'm sorry. Let's <laughs> see, I started
1: I started using the Mac in nineteen ninety, so it's been yeah. a long time. I've been doing it. I wasn't born. Oh no, I was born. Just. Well you were
0: clearly a Mac <laughs> I was two. Yeah, well, you know, Terry's uh Terry was born and and in the crib was a, was a mouse. A, a, a fat Mac. So <laughs> he just jumped right in um so th- this apple apple samsung case seems oh. crazy seems crazy to me uh-huh. um and i think we're seeing more behind the curtain than we ever have with apple and, and kind of what's what's been the biggest takeaway for you uh so far in in this case oh um
1: it's nice it's nice to get a little bit of a hint of how apple does its job i always I'm always fascinated by what the Apple process is, and how, and you can intuit a lot of it. But it's very rare that you get little, you know, a little peek here and there of what happens and what their processes are like and the uh, the inner workings. That because Apple wants it to be a magic trick always. They want it to be a black box, and and things happen. And that's Apple, of course, always intended it for it to be that way. When in fact, there's a lot of hard work that happens behind the scenes. So having some of that come out. Is interesting. I, I I really hate all of these law these legal cases. I I you know, I don't I don't like them. I I, d- I decided um I discovered about myself a, a while ago that, um legal stuff and uh venture capital and investing and things like that are just subjects that I have no interest in at all. It's not why I'm interested in technology. So, for something like this case, I try to glean from it what I can about. Um, you know about apple 's inner workings and also samsung 's inner workings, and I, you know it 's been fascinating. I assumed the day that the that the iPhone was announced that there were there were people in the in every phone I think I said in every uh, phone maker around the world, there were people going, "Oh my God," and then there were engineers who were walking into their managers offices and saying, "I told you." That we were that this was bad. <laughs> why why are we making it? And with Samsung, you've got a little bit of that, where they're doing an analysis of their phones compared to the iPhone and and, and realizing what a uh, you know how far behind they are, and that Apple has really just dropped this thing on them that's completely disruptive. And uh, if if anything shocked me about that, it's just been that um, there wasn't enough. I assumed I always assumed that there was less complacency at these companies, and that there were that there were engineers in there. I mean I had a I had a trio and I had a I had a Nokia phone for a while before the iPhone came out and these were these were bad. These were bad products, which it turns out is why the iPhone was prioritized by Apple, is that the executives there hated their blackberries and and palms. And you know, I'm I'm shocked that there wasn't a little more of an internal struggle as far as we can tell at Nokia and at Samsung and at companies like that where engineers were saying, these products are bad. We need better products. But it turns out you know, it's not like that. These companies are largely complacent. They figured their products were good enough because they were selling and nobody else was making anything any better. So that market was just going to sit there and sort of very slowly advance and be full of crappy products. And it took Apple to come in from the outside. Um, but – I but it is it's scary it, because i i imagine that there are lots of industries where there has never been an apple to do that and those are the industries that are ripe for disruption and i hope that they are they're disrupted but you know gosh if you're if you're a successful company should you not be devoting some of your time to figuring out how to be the disruptor yourself and you know and and cannibalize your own products and and end up in the net uh being more successful and yet when you look inside like that samsung memo you know how how they could have gotten caught almost flat-footed by the iPhone is beyond me.
0: Yeah. And Yet it, that seems to be the. And it kind of makes uh, companies like Rim seem even more sad to me. Like they couldn't even accept it for years afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's been five years since this thing came out, and you still are yeah, playing a, the game like it never happened. It
1: took them three years to admit that maybe they needed to change. And and whereas at least Samsung seems to have said, like, almost on the day the iPhone was announced, oh, God, we need to do something here. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) Holy cow. What is happening? Yeah. Get the tracing paper out.
1: But that, that, that's one of the most admirable admirable things about Apple is, and the, the the example that everybody always gives, and it's a good one, is is replacing the iPod Mini with the iPod Nano. It, it's Apple saying what we've got, even if, if it's successful, isn't necessarily good enough. And I hope Apple keeps that up. And other companies should do that too. You should always be pushing because there is, you know, yes, there's something to be protected, but there's also a huge advantage to be found if you can innovate. And I wish more companies would do that because that, that, was, that was what surprised me about Samsung in particular was uh, – you know, I, I expected that there would have been more of an internal struggle of you know we should do a phone like this and you know, these sorts of features are what people want. And instead, it was very much like they didn't talk about it until Apple told them what to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right in line. You know, we're just speaking about Jim Dalrymple. Uh, he wrote a piece that, that went up uh, on the 7th. Um, entitled Apple's Motivation for Suing Samsung and that was kind of his argument as well that you know Apple's products are so disruptive to the industry like Apple has to stop Samsung um, for that for that very reason you know for, just for the very fact that Apple is disruptive its products are turning the industry upside down and Apple cannot allow Samsung or any other company it's Samsung this week but next week it could be somebody else you know to to, to be to ride those coattails into it as much as possible
1: right i mean it apple puts in the time apple doesn't want to be the r&d group for all of the rest of of technology right i mean Mm -hmm. and they are in some ways but they want to be able to profit from their original thinking for as long as possible and you know i don't think it's realistic that that Apple's going to basically get a court ruling that says, no, you can never make anything like the iPhone. But I do think the more uh, trouble Apple makes here, uh, the more you – know, Apple benefits from having people have to think twice about what they do with their products when they're trying to copy Apple. And I think that's ultimately what Apple's at here, is Apple wants to make it as difficult as possible, as fraught with peril as possible to really bug you know, or really, really – you know duplicate Apple's products and and just make people say well wait a second you know I'm afraid I'm afraid to copy the iPad I'm afraid to knock that off because what is Apple going to do and you know in some ways i think that's really what apple wants out of this is they just want to they want to have some fear <laughs> instilled in their competitors not to not to knock off their products at least not so blatantly right i mean the samsung examples i think are really blatant um yeah, and, and when you compare it to something like a windows phone uh, that is a very different kind of product and is original and is competing on those terms versus something like especially early versions of android and those early samsung phones that were they were just rip offs
0: yeah a- absolutely you know it's um some of the some of the images you know that have come out you know to the press, it is like you you can know nothing about the tech industry. You could not know who Apple or Samsung were, and you can tell that one of those phones is derived from the other. You know, it's like uh, who thought this would be okay? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But
1: uh,
0: again, law law makes me sleepy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty brutal. Um, <laughs> well uh, I think I think that's all I've got. Um Jason, thanks for joining us. It's been it's been fun to chat for a while.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm I was happy to be happy to be here. I was gonna say happy to be back on the old show, but now it's a new show, so I'm happy to be uh guest number two. It was great.
0: Yeah. Well you know uh Jim was the last show on the uh or the last guest on the bro show. He he effectively killed it, so we had to <laughs> uh, had to start over.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> On a good stage, it's you know, no nobody better to give your podcast a Viking funeral than Jim Dalrymple. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, uh, where can where can people find you on the uh, vast plane that is the internet? Right. Uh, let's see. So, uh, most of my stuff
1: about Apple is on MacWorld.com. You can find me on Twitter at jsnell, and uh, my current see. Intertext was my first internet side project. I've gone through a couple since then. My current internet side project is The Incomparable Podcast, which is a sort of geek culture, sci-fi-ish books and TV shows and movies podcast. And you can find that at – actually, if you go to theincomparable.com, you can find it or it's on uh, the 5x5 Podcast Network. You can find it there too. And that's uh, my current labor of love in my – um, copious free time, which I have very little of now, but it's <laughs> project for...
0: And we should say uh, a big congratulations on uh, episode 100. Well, you know, you do a podcast for 100 straight weeks. It, it just happens. <laughs> picks over
1: to 100. It's not exactly, you know, big enough number for us to do a little thing about it. But it's, it's you know, to do anything for two years straight is you know you could it's very easy to stop let me tell you very easy to be like oh, this is too much work let's stop so but it's, it's fun i uh I'm, I'm having a good time with it and i'm i'm fortunate to have a bunch of uh uh great people on the panel who who uh i don't have to do all the heavy lifting i just have to sort of schedule a
0: time and then they talk and that helps a lot yeah it's, it's a lot of fun uh, to listen to what about you mr lucy you find me on twitter at terry lucy Awesome. Short and sweet. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at ISMH or at 512pixels.net. Uh, you can follow uh, along uh, at uh, for the whole network at 70 decibels. And uh, have no fear, Mike Hurley, our fearless leader, will be back next week, uh, so you don't have to put up with the Southern accent any longer. Uh, Jason, again, uh, thanks. And everybody else, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Do-do-do!